Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello and welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. Really excited to have JP here with me today as my co-host. Great to see you, JP. Great to be here. I apologize for my voice. I've been sick for a little while. My voice is slowly returning, so I sound a little bit funny. But this is Dr. Habib, I promise. And today we are going to jump in on the topic of sleep. Sleep with regards to autonomic nervous system function and sleep with regards to function of microglial cells in the brain and the importance of and the role of these cells in different stages of sleep and why they're so important and what function they have during each of these different stages. We're going to come up with some fun analogies for you along the way, and I'm really excited to share this with everybody. So let's jump in on sleep. JP, take it away. Let's jump in with a couple of good stories to start. Sure. Well, anytime I ever talk about sleep, I'm always reminded, and this is probably exposing both my age and my geeky side, but there's a television show which some of your older listeners might remember called Star Trek The Next Generation. And there was a great fun character on the show by the name of Q. He was sort of like an impish character, but he was omnipotent and he came from almost like godlike powers. And in one episode, he was stripped of those powers by the rest of the Q continuum, which is where he was from. And he ended up on the Enterprise. And so Captain Picard promptly tossed him in the brig for all the torture that he had submitted the crew to over the years. And so he's in there for about 24 hours and he calls for the captain to come see him because he had this terrifying experience where he found himself fatigued and it was difficult to think clearly. And he had uncontrollable hallucinations. And after he's complaining, the captain just sort of dismisses it and says, yeah, you fell asleep. I always think of sleep in that way. I think the opposite is probably really true for the rest of us, which is I'm on the high side of 40 years old. And I will tell you that even with all the things that I do to try to keep myself in good health, I still yearn for a good night's sleep some nights when I don't get it. And sometimes it's because I have four kids and other times it's because I want to stay up late working. But other times it's simply because as you age, you have a more difficult time getting a good night's sleep, especially in the society we live in. So I just think it's really important for people to understand the importance of sleep, what sleep is for, and why simply saying, well, I'll just be tired tomorrow and I'll live with it really is not something you should do on a regular basis because there's really important things that happen while you're asleep. And given the fact that if you think about it, sleep is one of those things that you wonder why it was survived evolution because you become completely disabled. You're not aware of your surroundings and you're unable to move for a portion of it, literally paralyzed for a portion of it. And yet we do it. That's the most dangerous time. You're unprotected. And yet it's so important that pretty much every species has some form of sleep. And really importantly, you need to do it for optimal function or else you won't be able to function optimally. And so it just goes to show fun little side note. I actually remember that episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, and I'm not on the other side of 40, but that does go to show my parents are definite Trekkies, and I was included in that journey with them. That's wonderful. (laughs) Awesome. So, yeah, sleep is a huge, important piece of our ability to function, of our survival, and 
for humans, sleep plays a really important role in our ability to create and recall memory, as well as our ability to eliminate toxins and, and challenges that are occurring within the brain. And that's what we're going to talk a lot about today. Why don't we jump in with some of the history behind what we understand sleep to be? Exactly. And as I said, it's something that is very curious because we do spend such a long time during our lives asleep and in such a disabled state as a result that there had to be a reason for it. And even as far back as, frankly, prehistory, there's cave drawings talking about the various phenomena associated with sleep and catatonic states and other things because of how disabled people were as a result of it. And so the historical records going back to ancient China and India and Egypt and ancient Greeks and Romans, they talked about sleep. Originally, they thought it was something that the gods delivered to people and that the gods caused dreams and things like that. But it was really the Greeks who started trying to understand the rational explanation behind sleep, whether it was because blood was draining out of the brain. There was a group of people who believed that that explained why the body temperature dropped. The temperature of your head actually dropped while sleeping. And that's true, it does, was because blood was draining out of your brain and you lost consciousness as a result. Didn't really explain how you then regained consciousness when you woke up, but it was interesting to see human beings trying to give a rational explanation for it. Of course, I always like to pick on Aristotle. He's a little bit bigger than me, but I like to pick on him for the fact that he believed that all of cognitive function happened in the heart. And so he believed that sleep was actually related to your heart and the consciousness that existed in your heart being going away for a period of time. I just think that's just a remarkable miss that he thought of the heart as being the center of cognition. Although it is interesting, it is interesting that sense that he had that you perceived things with your heart still persists in what we say to one another. It's like, I know in my heart. Well, you can't possibly know in your heart because that's not where cognition happens. And yet we still have it in our language. I know in my heart or I feel in my gut. These things are ways in which we are still clinging to, at least linguistically, clinging to older concepts of how our brains and our bodies function. Quite interesting how our language has taken in concepts from such a long time ago and just embedded them and these phrases are just so ubiquitous now that we use them without truly thinking about where they're coming from or why they've been stated linguistics we can get into it a whole another set of episodes if we wanted to i'm sure i love it so much that every time we talk i like to piece in a little bit of that aristotle i want to back up aristotle was obviously a giant and he was not completely off base he did recognize that there was an association between eating, especially large meals, and triggering the progression to go to sleep. And there is some truth to the fact that meals will alter your vagal tone and that by altering your autonomic nervous system, putting you in that rest and digest mode, it actually helps to push you into that stage where you're on the pathway to sleep. And sleep doesn't occur instantaneously. There's actually a whole progression that takes place getting to sleep. And we'll get into that as we move forward today. Certainly. Why don't we start talking a little bit about kind of the initial findings of Galen and 
how kind of the idea of what Aristotle came up with was not exactly what we were finding then scientifically. Yeah. And Galen, we've talked about Galen before. Galen was a Roman physician and really probably one of the biggest giants in the field of medicine that we have. Obviously, he didn't have the same tools that we have today, but he had great powers of observation. He was at the center of really all learning of the prior generations and prior history. So he was able to be very learned on what people before him had discovered and or conjectured. And then he took it that next step. And really, for 17 centuries, his thoughts and opinions really held sway in the medical field. He made the assertion, as we talked about, I think, in a prior episode, that all of the senses are gathered together in the brain and that the brain is the center of where all those senses come together. And we talked about the fact that linguistically, the phrase common sense comes from the idea that all the senses were gathered together and compared in the brain and that the commonality among your senses was sort of the prevailing wisdom of your mind as to how you should perceive the world. And so common sense was the result of that's the true answer. But he believed that sleep was part of a process to detoxify the body. And that in order to do that, you had to shut down the brain and allow your senses to reinflate, if you will. And and I use the word reinflate because he actually believed that your sensory nerves were soft. And he actually believed that he could literally touch your nerves, your peripheral nerves, to determine whether they were motor nerves carrying the force of will and nerves of steel because you had you were brave and you had lots of willpower versus sensory nerves, which were soft, and that the world would make literally an impression on you. That's where the phrase making an impression on you comes from. So he believed that sleep was a detoxifying and restorative process. And that was really the first explanation that described maybe a mechanism why you would wake up. You would wake up because you would go to sleep because the toxins had reached the level that they needed to be cleared and you just had to go to sleep. It's not entirely wrong. I mean, it's actually quite prescient of him to have come up with that. And that once during sleep, that process of detoxification had completed, then you would wake up and feel refreshed and you were without any toxins in you. Not a bad explanation by any means. Didn't in any way explain how that happened, but it was remarkable. And it was extended by Ibn Sina, also known as Avicenna, and his work on the brain, which really those two gentlemen, those two individuals really carried the day through until, frankly, the late 19th century with respect to sleep. And to a certain extent, some of the things were just right and they still exist today. But it was in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries that neuroscience, neurotransmitters, and microglial cells and astrocytes and understanding at the cellular level and even at the molecular level, what was happening allowed us to analyze sleep better, understand the stages of sleep, things like non-rapid eye movement and rapid eye movement, known as REM or REM sleep, how those things progress, what the length of time of the sleep cycle is, how many sleep cycles you generally need, all of that stuff really occurred really just within the last 50 years, to a large extent. It's really interesting to hear about the power of observation for generations as being 
this tool that was utilized and essentially provided the basis by which now technology has been able to help us dig deeper and understand the why of what those impressions and those observations were showing us many years ago when technology was finally able to catch up and show us about the biochemistry of neurotransmitters and the function of the structure of neurons and neuronal connectivity and the support cells that we're talking about today, microglial cell astrocytes. Until the tech kind of came along, we had no choice but to understand based on pure observation to the point of being able to quote unquote feel a peripheral nerve and notice whether it was a motor nerve or a sensory nerve. Really interesting to see kind of where they came from, where science kind of was at that time and what technologies really allowed us to do in terms of accelerating how quickly and how fully we understand why our body functions the way that it does. Yeah, I guess I'm very fortunate because my introduction to medicine and introduction to medical sciences really came through my uncle and my father. My father was an obstetrician gynecologist and my uncle was a spine surgeon. And both of them really had what I would consider something of an iconoclastic view of things. They really didn't necessarily adopt the prevailing opinions about how the world was telling them things function. For example, my father as an OBGYN was aware that there was a subset of his patients who were experiencing symptoms like fibromyalgia or depression or, you know, other what we now call sort of somatoform disorders, and that he knew them long enough that he knew them prior to the onset of those symptoms. And while some of his younger colleagues and even some of his older colleagues just passed off those complaints as the normal complaints of women as they age or just chalk them up as being crazy, my father really sort of chafed at that opinion and said, no something is wrong simply because I can't figure out what it is or, I, or medical science doesn't tell me how to figure it out yet doesn't mean that what they're experiencing isn't real. And that was something that I think is unfortunate. And we're very fortunate being people who are working to demystify some of these things and give credence to the people who are the patients who are actually experiencing those things. My uncle, on the other hand, gave me another bit of advice, which I think was really helpful which and how I view modern medical science, not as an end, but as just one more step on the road on a journey that's going to last for many thousands more miles. And he always told me, you know, we think we're so bright and so smart because we have electron microscopes now and we have, we can do PCR and we have all these techniques for doing science, but really we've supplement or we've replaced the power of observation, which really carried the day for thousands of years and carried us to where we are today so that we can start using those instruments. And it really, really, really matters for us to step back sometimes and use those powers of observation, which unfortunately are weaker today, frankly, I think in many cases, because those people like, yes, Aristotle made mistakes, but he also was the father of probably 20 different fields of science because he was a keen observer. And people like Galen and Avicenna were very, very keen observers of just the world around them and pattern recognition of, well, wait a minute, I've seen this five times in patients that I have. Therefore, maybe there's something to this. It was not just a coincidence. There's some 
relationship, maybe not causal, maybe it's just associated, but it's, there's an association here that I need to investigate and I need to think about and I need to watch for next time. Maybe people down the road will be able to figure it out. The classic example that I like to give, and I'll sort of then we'll move back to sleep again, is chicken soup. We all have grandmothers and mothers who told us, you know, have chicken soup when you're not feeling well. And nowadays people sort of chalk it up and say, yeah, all right, that's fine. That's whatever. That's an old wives tale. But you know what? There turns out that there's really important things in that chicken broth and in the chicken fat that when you eat a good homemade chicken soup, it has an effect on your immune system. It has an effect on your microbiome in your gut. It has an effect on the endothelial lining of your gut to reduce the leakiness of it. It stops the production of inflammatory cytokines that make you feel bad. So all of those things that are happening are happening because of chicken soup. And yeah, my grandmother didn't know anything about any of that stuff that I just said, but she knew that chicken soup made you feel better. And so when I was sick as a kid, she'd make me chicken soup and I felt better. Yeah. Power of observation and the power of understanding that these ideas that have been there for thousands and thousands of years have some credence to them. They have some weight to them. And I completely agree. Our ability to observe has significantly decreased and our we don't need to get into kind of the whole side of that stuff. And I would love to go down that rabbit hole with you, but we'll do an episode on that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let's dig back into sleep and let's talk about what really truly happens biochemically within the body and particularly the brain when we get to sleep. Sure. And actually to understand sleep, you have to understand being awake and you have to understand what the differences are in brainwave patterns and in, in the release of neurotransmitters, et cetera, that are going on. Because one of the things that's been discovered is that if you have really good sleep, then you'll be really awake the next day. You'll be really alert. We all know that. We feel that. But if you actually look at the depth of sleep that you get, it is almost the inverse or mirror image of how alert you're going to be. And that, of course, relates to the release of neurotransmitters. So when you're awake, there's the release of various different neurotransmitters, one of which is norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is associated with being alert. But over time, too much release of norepinephrine, so if you're awake for a really long period of time, the microglial cells will slowly begin to shift into an inflammatory, and I don't really mean inflammatory, I mean sort of a, a more non-quiescent state, not necessarily pro-inflammatory. So I, I want to make certain it's not, it's not the same, but they begin to release and to produce inflammatory cytokines, not because they're going to go out and attack something and not because they're necessarily changing their, their morphology, but because they're going to need those things in order to get you to sleep. In fact, we know when you're ill that the ability to sleep is enhanced. I always talk about the fact that when you get sick, you sleep for 10 hours in the middle of the day. You could never possibly do that if you're healthy. Even if I were to lie down, maybe I could take a cat nap. But, you know, within an hour, I'd be awake and I'd need to get back up again. Um, and then I'd have a lousy night's sleep. But um, the, the, the idea that inflammatory cytokines, not necessarily inflammatory microglial cells, but inflammatory cytokines help you get to sleep. And the longer you stay awake, the more of them are present is part of this idea of your body needing sleep. 
and your microglial cells and your immune cells are pushing you towards getting to sleep. So that's what's happening when you're awake. As you transition into sleep, that's where you see this change in sensory perception. You see this areas of the brain start to shut down and you close your eyes. When you close your eyes right now, you see something. You see a gray field. When you're asleep, your eyes are closed, but you're not seeing anything. And that's the difference. You see, as a person's transitioning to sleep, you see a reduction in activity in areas like, you know, like the hypothalamus where there's the preoptic area. So it's not necessarily stopping your optic nerve from functioning, but it's stopping that message from getting all the way there. So you're not seeing what your eyes are, and your eyes are they're still collecting information. If somebody turns a light on and it gets through your eyelids, there's still light there, but you're not perceiving it because it's not getting all the way to where you would perceive it. Same thing with the auditory uh, areas of your brain. People say they can smell smoke and, and they wake up. That's because it's still there. You're still those areas are still active, but they're somewhat disconnected, and they will only be reconnected if something forces you to uh, get to be awake. You know, if the, if the fire alarm goes off in the, in the building you're in or in the hotel or, or your alarms go off in the house, a break-in happens, you'll wake up because you hear those things. Or if somebody turns the lights on and starts making noise, you'll wake up. All of those areas of the brain are still active. You're not anesthetized. It's yeah. not like you've gone to, under general anesthesia. But there's this suppression of sensory perception that is required so that your brain can begin to do the things that it's doing. And, and that, that takes place not just at sort of the macroscopic level of, of big areas of your brain and what the activity is, but it's actually happening at the cellular level and at the molecular level as you see changes in activity of cells. You'll see changes in the activity of neurons and microglial cells. That's really, to me, part of the most exciting aspect of sleep is what's happening at that level. Yes, it's great that perception is reduced. And I'll take one brief tangent here, which I think is really interesting. And people out there, if you're experiencing this, or if you know somebody's experiencing this, just be aware of what it could mean. When you fall asleep, you go through a period of, of movement. If you sort of take time-lapse photography of, of a person sleeping, you'll see them moving around the bed. They're not awake, but they're moving. And then there's a period where there's no movement. And that is a period of sleep when you're dreaming. And then a second portion where you are actually replaying the dream. And in that period, your body is paralyzed. So there's actually a neurotransmitter cascade that takes place that literally paralyzes your body. And the reason is because your body doesn't want to thrash around and while you're experiencing that dream. Um, because you could hurt yourself or you could hurt somebody else. There is a, um, a condition that is, is linked very, very close to, closely to Parkinson's disease in which the ability to shut down that movement is broken. And it starts to, as, as a result of it breaking down, people start to thrash around, not just simply roll over, but really arms and legs flailing because of the fact that they're experiencing and living through the dream that they've they've created in their minds. And the symptom is oftentimes the spouse wakes up with bruises from having been sleeping nearby. And it almost looks like there's been so a domestic abuse situation. 
And so one of the ways that neurologists used to actually diagnose this, because the person who's experiencing it and doing it doesn't know. The only way to really be aware of it was the fact that the spouse was actually hitting or getting hit. And so you diagnose it by seeing that the spouse has bruises, but yet there's no problem with their relationship. So in any event, that's a little side note. What's really fascinating is what's happening at the molecular level and the immune level while you're sleeping. I'm going to throw a couple of analogies out there. I think it's really important. When you mentioned microglial cell activity, you mentioned that it's gone from a more quiescent state to a more pro-inflammatory state. When we talk about the state in which these cells are, uh, the analogy of a light switch comes up. It is not simply inflammatory and anti-inflammatory. It's not like it's a switch that goes up and down only. It's a dimmer switch. It's on a gradient in terms of how active or how inflammatory the activity is and how strong or how reactive those microglial cells can be in those particular times. Consider it like a dimmer switch that slowly and surely that dimmer switch is elevating or increasing in activity because the inflammation level within the body is increasing. And that's going to happen while we're awake is that there are some inflammatory reactions to the basic general insults that we experience through the day. And as those accumulate, the inflammatory cytokine activity increases. We have more inflammation increasing as the day goes on, which is why once we get to that end of the day, we often are very depleted. We feel the need to get to rest, to sleep. Working out at the end of the day is probably not the best time to work out because we're increasing the inflammation level further and we're throwing our body into a state of cortisol and norepinephrine activating. We need to do it at certain times when we're more awake. And so there are optimal times for workouts. There are optimal times for rest. And as we go through the day, as we get closer to the night time, getting into that rest state, that rest, quote unquote, digest and recover state that is primarily vaguely activated is important. And so as that dimmer switch increases to a more inflammatory reactive state for those microglial cells, we want to get into that sleep pattern. That's a really important analogizing distinction there. Consider the dimmer switch, not the flip switch. I think that's a great, great distinction to make that it's not a, a digital state where you're either inflammatory or non-inflammatory. In fact, I would even take it one step further. It's not just one dimensional. It's actually two dimensional. It's like the dimmer switch plus you could change the colors. It's really a multi-dimensional change that takes place. There's literally thousands and thousands of different proteins that these cells can make. And these, these proteins can actually be different in and of themselves. An individual protein can be modified in a different way. So there's literally just millions of different ways that these cells can act. And I'm probably being underestimating it when I say a million, because there's so many different dimensions of how these cells can behave. They are literally the most, and by they, I mean not just microglial cells, but macrophages in general, because microglial cells are simply the tissue resident macrophages of the brain. But these macrophages have literally so many different ways in which they can behave in so many different functions and so many different responsibilities in the body that really they're the most influential cells. We've talked about this before. They literally create us. They maintain us. When we get injured, they help heal us. And they have so many different functions and so many different organs that when they have dysfunction, we experience symptoms. 
And when they ultimately, when their dysregulation gets too severe, we can die. And so these cells are the most important to watch. And the role that microglial cells play in sleep is, from my perspective, my understanding of things, we sleep because we have microglial cells. We sleep because microglial cells push us into that state because they've got a job to do. They have to clean the situation up that evolved during the day. And you said during the day, we talked about norepinephrine slowly but surely increasing the release of inflammatory cytokines or what we'll call quote unquote inflammatory cytokines. But they're those cytokines way not only of making us sleepy, but making us achy. So you have this image of a person at the end of the day, crawling into bed, achy and tired and just ready to fall asleep. Well, the reason you're feeling those aches, the reason you're feeling tired, the reason why you feel like you just need to get to sleep is because those cytokines are now flowing at higher levels through your bloodstream. There's a circadian rhythm to those cytokines being expressed. And it's all about getting to sleep and getting yourself into a situation where the microglial cells can do what they need to do to restore you and to solidify memories, to lock in learning, and to do lots of things that we're, I hope, about to talk about because they're so exciting and interesting to me. You mentioned a word that is near and dear to me and and what I do with my patients, and that is circadian rhythm, circadian biology understanding that there are optimal times and we have a hormonal and neurotransmitter-based biochemical pattern that cascades through the day and through the night, allowing us to function at an optimal level. Absolutely. That circadian biology, that circadian rhythm is something that if we optimize for it, we are able to actually take steps towards optimization, towards longevity, towards optimal energy, towards optimal function and decreased risk of disease and prevention of diseases. And so what we're talking about today is on that sleep side of things, how do we ensure that we optimize that circadian biology while we're sleeping so that we're able to step up and be the best version of ourselves the next day? For me, that's a huge important piece to what we're talking about. Sure. And we've talked about many times about the fact that Western culture does many things that disrupt what is the normal homeostatic balance that's supposed to be present in our bodies. One of the things is our diet, lots of extra sugar that gets put into our bloodstream. What do we know that sugar does? It increases insulin levels. You sort of have that sugar high and then the sugar crash. We eat so much more sugar today than our grandparents did, or even our parents. And it has an impact on our the cycles that you're talking about, those metabolic cycles that are part of your circadian rhythms. The other big piece is we have electric lights and we have blue light on our phones and our screens that has the ability to activate us in a way that's really disruptive to that normal day-night sleep cycle that we're programmed for. And we see in people who have shift work. So you think to yourself, okay, well, why would it matter? Why would it matter if instead of sleeping from 10 o'clock at night until six o'clock in the morning, and that's when I get my eight hours of sleep, why is that any better than working through the night and going to bed at eight o'clock in the morning and getting up at four o'clock in the afternoon? What's the problem? I still get eight hours of sleep. I'm up for the other 16 hours. I've got a work day. I've got, why is that a problem? I'm still eating at the same. It is a problem. And you see 
lots of different immunological problems and even degenerative conditions that come about simply because you're using artificial light as opposed to natural light to drive your day and to get through your 16 hours of the wake cycle. It's all happening up in the central nervous system. It's all happening. Your visual cortex is such a huge portion of your brain. I mean, it's something close to a third of your brain. And if you're using a different type of light or a different spectrum of light, it just has a different effect on you. And that will ultimately affect how your mood is, how your brain functions, how your, frankly, how your cognitive processes work. And so just be aware that if you are a shift worker and you are working through the night, make certain that you do what you can to restore in that environment natural light, or at least mimic natural light versus you know, fluorescent light bulbs, if you can. If you're out there and you're the CEO of a company and you've got a shift worker crew, maybe get some natural lights in that give the full spectrum for your workers. I'm just throwing that out there as something you might want to consider doing. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and I'll tell you, just on that front, it was one of the things that my grandfather, who was a psychologist, was very interested in was a study, and you may have heard of it, but it's so fascinating, I just want to share it, was that Western Electric had an assembly line. And what they wanted to do was figure out how they could make that assembly line run more efficiently and effectively. And so one theory was, well, let's add more lights. So they went in and they added some more lights. And sure enough, the efficiency of, of the assembly line got better. And they thought, well, okay, well, let's see if, if adding even more lights works. And they added more lights and efficiency went up and they added more lights and it went up further. It got to the point where people were starting to wear sunglasses. They had so much light in the room that people were wearing sunglasses. So then people who were running the study said, well, that's kind of crazy. Now they're actually voluntarily decreasing the amount of light. And yet we still saw this increase. Maybe we need to decrease it. Maybe we missed the optimal point, the peak point. So they decreased the light back to one of the earlier settings and efficiency went up even further. And they said, well, that's crazy. Why is the efficiency and the productivity of this line at X level better than it was last time it was at X level? Because we went past that before and now we're back to it and it's even better. And so they finally did what it's kind of crazy that they hadn't done already. They went and they started talking to the people who worked there and say, well, what's going on? <laughs> Here's what we did. And you know what the people's response was? It was, it's clear that management cares. It's clear based on the fact that they're doing all these things, trying to figure out how we can work better, that they care about us. And that was really all it was. All they needed to do was show to their workers that they cared about them. So again, to that CEO, if you own a plant and they've got shift workers, you're going to get better productivity simply by showing them that you care about them. And by putting those lights in, you're not simply spending the money to make their lives better and make them healthier. You're actually making them more efficient and effective because they'll feel that you care about them. Anyway, it's a bit side of what we're talking about, but I figured we talked about shift work and it was relevant. Yeah, it definitely goes to the point of understanding that light is going to drive certain hormonal processes that our body functions with the circadian rhythm that is tied very much to light patterns through the day and the night. And so understanding that is really important. And yes, if you are a business owner and you want to help create some excess productivity in your night shift workers, do that work to help them 
understand that you care about them and that you want them to be more productive where they can be. I think that's a really great story. I think it also tells us something about modern society because it demonstrates that human beings are really no different than we were 10,000 years ago. And 10,000 years ago, there was a tremendous amount of socialization that people couldn't survive on their own. Idea of no man being an island, you really couldn't survive all by yourself. You needed to have a team of people that you were either your tribe or your clan or your fellow workers in the community, your small town. You had a community. We've become so self-sufficient at being individuals that there's a tremendous number of people who really don't have a social network beyond a spouse without kids or something like that. They don't engage. And I think that you're going to find that as we move through that phase of human history, there's going to be a lot more, and there already is, and we're seeing a lot more things like fibromyalgia, things like migraines, things like all those pain conditions and mood conditions and gut conditions that are growing. And I think a portion of that is a function of the fact that people don't have that socialization that they need in order to be as healthy as possible. Yeah, there's no question. And it's one of those pieces to that circadian biology that socialization needs to occur as this empowering and engaging part of when we're awake. And then for us to get back into that sleep pattern, we need to go into that zone where we can consider and think and observe and reflect and be kind of on our own. And this is when our body and our brain shifts into this sleep state where we are focusing on gathering and sorting memories, where we're focused on gathering and sorting ideas and creating new neuronal connections. And then the next day, we have the opportunity to repeat and strengthen those connections or build new positive connections or even negative connections. And how do we help to prune those connections effectively during the night so that the next day we ideally are going down a positive path and reinforcing those positive connections more? Yeah, that, that to me is just the most fascinating part about sleep. And I'm glad that you got me back on track to talk about that because that's really the, uh, the crux of what sleep science is really about today, which is what's happening at the different phases of sleep. And so when you enter sleep, we talked about the fact that your inflammatory cytokine levels are relatively high. You feel aching before you go to bed. You're tired. You're ready to sort of let the world go and fall asleep. Once you're into that first stage of sleep, the microglial cells are very active. And what they're doing is they are pruning away a lot of the connections that were made during the day that weren't necessary. We think of the brain as learning in sort of a very directed and intelligent way, but that's really not how it works. And what I mean by that is that in the hippocampus, which is a, a big area for learning and memory creation, et cetera, you have neurogenesis. So you have nerves being created regularly, especially during the wake cycle. You have new nerves being created, and 90% of those nerves are being created randomly because that's what the way they're being created, and they need to be digested away. So they're killed off. The remaining 10% are in places where the connections that could be made are correct. They're the appropriate places for those. And so those connections are being made, and they're being made during the day. And 
simply because those synapses are there, they start to fire when activated. And if they fire correctly or in a way that's useful, they get reinforced. They get used multiple times. If they're not in the right place or they're not connected in the right way, then they have no activity. And we know that activity and sensory dependence, pruning activity is what microglial cells do. So you've created these cells, you've gotten rid of the ones that you don't need. The ones that are there that are in the right place are then connected really randomly again. And those random connections that are useful and that are being activated through cognitive function, when you're making those connections, we talk about it in our language. Did you make the connection? Well, that's literally what's happening. Connections are being made. We should say, did you use the right connection? Because <laughs> that's really the way you know you learn. You use the right connection and it produces the right result and it gets reinforced. And the ones that don't, those connections that were randomly made that don't help, well, they don't have any activity. And then when you get to sleep, the microglial cells come in and they do a bunch of different things. First thing is they start digesting away. They clear out the debris from the cells that were killed off. They start digesting away those connections that don't help, the ones that shouldn't have been made. And now they, what they do is they go to the ones that have been active, that have been reused and reinforced. And what they do is they do what's called long-term potentiation of those cells. They are those connections. They create, they change them structurally so that the amount of excitation required to activate that pathway is reduced. Now the, the brain and the microglial cells say, okay, we've seen that this connection was used, but when it's first created, that connection requires a lot of neurotransmitter, a lot of activation in order to fire. So you sort of need to reinforce it. You know, that's why we talk to our kids. It's like, well, you know, you didn't just learn it the first time. You got to practice it. You got to do it again. You got to reinforce that connection. Once that connection is reinforced, then the next step is we want to make certain that there's not too much excitation going on because you can get what's called excitotoxicity. So you want to take the time to downregulate what it actually takes to activate that. So now you've made that connection. It's a good one. We're going to keep it. Now let's downregulate how much the activation is required to keep it active. And that long-term potentiation also happens most effectively during sleep. It's a long-term process. It takes not just seconds or even a minute or two. That process takes time. And we do that in, during that non-REM sleep. I had the opportunity to have a really great conversation yesterday with one of our former podcast guests, Dr. Tremblay from up in British Columbia. We were talking about sleep. She's doing some work on sleep and wanted to talk with her about the difference between non-REM sleep and REM sleep and what her perspective is. And we came up with a really good analogy. The analogy is you've got a car and you notice some things might be wrong with the car. You're taking it in for its 3,000 mile checkup or 50,000 mile checkup or whatever. And you bring it in and they turn the car off. They turn the car off and they put it up on the pneumatic lift. And they start changing things. They change the belts, they tighten a few screws, they change some dials, they replace the spark plugs and the wiring. They do all sorts of things to it while the car's off. That's like the microglial cells going in and starting to change the synaptic connections, doing the pruning, 
the debris clearance that we've talked about, the toxin removal, all of those things, doing the long-term potentiation, changing, changing the threshold levels. That's like what's happening to the car while it's not running. But you need to make certain that all the things that you did to the car didn't ruin it. You got to make certain that it still functions. And that is, in my mind, at least, this was part of the conversation, it's sort of like the road test. You need to take the car out for the road test to make certain that everything you did is now functioning more efficiently and more effectively. That's what dreams are. That's what you're getting during that rapid eye movement. It's basically test running whether or not the things that you changed and the way you changed it made it a work function and function properly. And I think, you know, again, this is cutting edge stuff right now in terms of what's actually happening during sleep. I think that explains why, maybe better than Freud explained, but I think it explains why you oftentimes dream about things that you experience during that day. Because the things that you experienced during that day and the ideas that you had during that day that created those new connections are being test-driven. It's just like test driving your car. You're test driving it to see whether or not it's going to function properly. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I read a book a while ago called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. And he talks about a very similar process here that all of these new connections, these new ideas, these new kind of neuronal synapses that were built out during the day, during the light sleep kind of stage, what we're doing is we're filing these things away. And then when we get into the deep sleep, what we're doing is we're running this idea through and we're creating and building connections. And the connections that stick and connect are the ones that are the synapses that we're going to build and connect together. And then the next day, you'll start to notice certain connections or certain prompts that actually prompt the idea of what you had in that dream. But it's really just filing away of these wonderful ideas that came up during the day. And if these ideas were positive and reinforcing and something that we want, then wonderful. But if they were also negative ideas, those can be reinforced as well. Essentially, the stronger the connection, the stronger the connectivity that occurred, the more strong that connection is going to be built out. And the next day, it's going to reinforce potentially as well with every new incoming experience that relates to that particular connection. Yeah, I think, first off, I wholeheartedly suggest people to either read that book or I know that Dr. Walker has presentations on TED Talks online. Great to listen to his talks. I think he's got some fabulous anecdotes some fabulous data that he throws in about the importance of sleep. Say one that I know I got, I'm almost positive I got from listening to him, which was that the incidences of car accidents occur and heart attacks are so much higher on the day in the spring where we spring forward into and we lose that hour of sleep. Literally that one hour of sleep is so important that it causes heart attacks. It causes car accidents. It causes fatalities on the roads. It causes so many problems, simply that one hour. Now, obviously we like it for a lot of other reasons, but on the other end, we get it back. That extra hour of sleep in the fall where you fall back and you get that extra hour of sleep as we go to normal time from daylight savings time, that is where you sort of recapture that. Now, you don't recapture it quite the same way because if you have a heart attack and die, you're not recapturing it. But it is really that important. So I totally wholeheartedly suggest that people do that. The one thing that I would say I'm not so sure that 
science is going to bear out what he's saying is the idea that it's during sleep that you're making those connections. Because I think it's the opposite. I think what's happening is that you make the connections during the day. And that's where you're learning. I'm certain that people have learned something in the morning. And then even though they haven't slept yet in the afternoon, they can apply that knowledge. So that's there. But it would be different how you apply that knowledge the next day or the next day or the next day after that. It will become easier to do because you will have reinforced, you'll cleared out the clutter that's associated with that day's growth in knowledge. And so it's during the day that you make the connections. It's at night that you prune away the crap and you reinforce it. Let's dig into how that happens because I think that's maybe it's a little bit really a deep dive into the science. But one of the things that happens during learning, we talked about while you're alert, those things are going on. You're having that increase in cytokine levels. But the other thing that's happening is there's a lot of energy, a lot of energy being used. And the currency of energy in the brain and in the body is typically, for those of you who took high school biology, you'll probably remember ATP. ATP is, is a molecule that has three triphosphates on it. It's adenosine triphosphate. It's the adding of those phosphates onto that adenosine base that gives it energy. And as the body uses the energy, the triphosphate, one phosphate will drop off and you have adenosine diphosphate. And then you'll have adenosine monophosphate, which is only one on there. And so that process of using up energy and creating energy um, has some of that leak into the extracellular space. So you have a certain amount of ATP that's out in the intracellular space. And it's very high, actually. You get a surge of that right during the first hours of sleep. You say, okay, all right, so what does that do? It turns out that microglial cells have on them little receptors that are specifically designed to find that ATP. So the areas where there's been a lot of activity and, and those cells have been active, you'll see a lot of microglial cells go into that area. And that connection between ATP and ADP and this receptor, which is called P2Y12, that P2Y12 receptor and that ATP or ADP creates a find me signal. It's called chemotaxis, a chemically based movement of the microglial cells to those synapses where the activity has been going on. And when you see that movement that movement generally then leads to a reinforcement, not a removal. So really important to distinguish how the microglial cells know what to do. In the case of reinforcement, it's because ATP or ADP is binding to PY12. But there's other chemotactic strategies for finding things. Another one is CX3CR1 which is it's a chemotactic connection between a ligand and a receptor. But you get sort of an immune response through something called complement three. We're not going to go into all the details of this, but there's another level of find me signals, which are associated with these complement, which is part of the immune cascade and microglial cells in these receptors that bring the microglial cells in. And in this case, that's more of a, okay, I need to digest that away. I need to remove that. I need to either clear out the debris. I need to take out a cell that's not in the right place and not functioning properly. Or I need to literally just nibble away at these synapses 
and remove that synapse, not kill off the whole cell or two cells, but just remove that synapse. And so you've got two pathways for find me that are each one side. One is reinforcing and the other one is digesting away. So that's, to me, I think that's really fascinating how it's literally the functioning of the cells that actually leads to the signaling that brings the immune cells in to do their job. I love that because it reinforces the idea that initially when new connections are being built, that a ton of energy is required to build up, to get to the threshold level of creating that new synapse. There's only very few connecting points at that synapse. There's very few neurotransmitter release points, and there's very few neurotransmitter receptors on the receptive side on that synapse. And so it requires a ton of energy in the form of ATP in order to allow for that potentiation of that synaptic activation to occur. And inevitably, if it's strong enough, there is going to be leak of that ATP, which is a sign in the P2Y12 case in particular to reinforce and create that long-term potentiation to lower the threshold that's required for that particular synapse to work at lower thresholds and for that connection to be reinforced more easily versus the idea where there isn't a whole bunch of ATP being released at another connection that's been built during the day and the ATP levels are nowhere near. It's not the same find me signal. It's the C3 find me signal that says, come here, this connection that we built isn't exactly necessary. It's not been reinforced multiple times. We're not setting a ton of energy here. Please feel free to prune this away and utilize this energy elsewhere. I love the discussion about energy and it reminds me of, we were talking about reading about the amount of energy that is required to do certain cognitive tasks or intellectual tasks with a computer. And so the goal, obviously, of the development of AI is ultimately to get to an artificial general intelligence that's equivalent or even greater than human intelligence. The wisdom of that is for another day, but that is certainly something that is a goal of computer science and the development of AI. The progression of stronger and better and efficient computers is obviously continuing. So I don't know exactly where on the continuum this particular statistic fell, but it was projected at one point that if you were to build a computer that had the human brain level of connectivity and the human brain level of capability, that it would require a power or an energy consumption that would be on the order of a large city like Chicago or New York or LA. And now I'm sure that that's coming down, but think about the fact that at the microcircuitry level, the level of energy necessary for a single transistor to function is like literally just, we're down to the point where it's just a couple of electrons. So it's clearly less than a neuron. Yeah. But yet we know that the entire human brain, which would take a city's worth of power to function if it were a computer, that our brain does that with just a few watts, 25 watts. It's, I mean, literally like a dim light bulb. And yet, all of the ability of a human brain to think and to reason and to problem solve and to remember and learn, all of those things are run by something that's incredibly low power. And 
even though comparatively to other species, it's high because we're, we're bigger, our brains are bigger, but it's just an incredibly small amount of energy. And the reason in part for that is because of that activity by the immune system, slowly every evening, every night when we go to sleep, pruning and adjusting the levels of the entire system so that it functions efficiently and it does so at low levels of excitation so that you don't end up with the problems of excitotoxicity that we've talked about before. So just a really exciting. I love it. I think that's what long-term potentiation is, is lowering that threshold for the requirement of energy at this particular connection that we've now built out is as this connection continues to be utilized and it becomes more quote unquote subconscious, something that we don't need to consciously think of and consciously push a ton of energy towards the thought process of we're able to, with very, very little bits of energy, create the, the reaction and create that cascade of events very, very easily. And that's where the energy piece really comes in. And that begs the question, if we're not sleeping effectively, what can go wrong in the system and why we require sleep in the quantity and the depth that we do in order to get this system functioning really well? Yeah, that goes to you know, what can go wrong in the system, what, you know, what can happen. And you point out what happens if we are sleep deprived. Unfortunately, for most of us, sleep deprivation is self-inflicted. It's such a common pathology in modern society that we really have to get a grip around it. And I think one really good way of getting a grip on it is, is to let people know what the consequences are, because we're seeing it everywhere. It is that impaired synaptic pruning and a less efficient memory storage. But so you actually end up getting memory loss. It's the inability to connect across long distances in the brain. In fact, one of the consequences of prolonged sleep deprivation, not just like pulling an all-nighter, but really prolonged lack of sleep is hallucinations. I mean, it's, it's almost like you're on one of those hallucinogenic drugs that we talked about on a couple episodes prior. You get that impaired memory formation, impaired reasoning, impaired mood. You start feeling pain. You talk about the fact that as you get later and later and later in the day, it's not the aches and pains of the day. It's the aches and pains of being alive that you start to experience and feel because higher levels of TNF-alpha, higher levels of IL-1 higher levels of inflammatory cytokines are starting to pervade the brain. And as a result, you feel pain. You see it in other ways that sleep can be disrupted. In fact, it's bi-directional. One of the things that people will often talk about when you talk to them about the sleep is, I'm trying to get good sleep. I'm trying to get good sleep. Okay, well, so what you've done or what may have happened to you is you're suffering with a condition now that is now reinforcing that sleep problem. You're trying to force a key into a lock that it doesn't fit in. Well, one of the things that can happen is not only are you not gonna open the lock with that key, but you might break the lock itself and now the right key won't work anymore. So same thing, it's like you've gone without sleep for so long, you've done so many things that have led to you being inflamed and in pain and other things that now sleep eludes you. So it's this, positive feedback, or in this case, a vicious feedback that feeds on itself. It's really important to get sleep and the consequences of not having sleep can lead to diseases that then make sleep more difficult. Let me say that again, just to make certain that 
it gets across. If you go without sleep, it makes you more likely to have conditions that will then, as a result of you now having that condition, make getting sleep more difficult. So you really want to break that cycle at the beginning, if at all possible, or as part of the therapy for whatever condition you have, make certain that the therapy includes sleep management properly. That's really key. And, and just to give us an example, the kind of diseases that or conditions that you can have and have results from not getting an appropriate amount of sleep include migraine headaches. That's sort of obvious. People know depression. Depression is one of those things that can lead to you not getting sleep, but also can be caused by not having sleep. So it's sort of vicious feedback pain. We talked about pain. You, know, you go to sleep at night, you feel achy, you wake up in the morning, you feel refreshed and better. It's not because of anything that actually happened physically, although in some cases, if you worked out, yes. But even if there wasn't a tremendous amount of repair to be done, it's simply your perception of the pain that's changed because you've done something up in the central nervous system. Gastrointestinal disorders, I know that's one of your favorites to talk about, is that lack of sleep leads to gastrointestinal problems. It alters your microbiome. There's also autoimmune diseases. It may not necessarily cause you to have rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or other things, but there are clinical studies that will show that if you go without sleep, especially for an extended period of time, the circulating levels of in periphery, not just in your brain, but peripherally, the circulating levels of inflammatory cytokines will rise. If you already have those conditions, it can lead to flare-ups, it can lead to worsening of the conditions, and it can certainly lead to the experience of discomfort associated with those conditions in a worse way. So there's so many conditions that are associated with and correlated to not necessarily causative. It's not like there's a direct line between sleep deprivation and a particular autoimmune condition. It just increases the risk of inflammatory cytokines being present peripherally, even centrally, and causing the opportunity or creating the opportunity for an inflammatory or autoimmune type of reaction to occur because the sleep deprivation occurred in the first place. It's essentially filling up that cup with more and more inflammatory cytokine until eventually the triggers and the stressors and the toxic buildup overflows that cup leading to the autoimmune diagnosis eventually needing to occur or the symptoms starting up, which lead to that diagnosis. And it's not just autoimmune and pain and migraine and cluster headache that we see that are associated with these conditions and depression. There's cancers that are heavily associated with sleep deprivation. There's neurodevelopmental disorders that are heavily associated with these and a bunch of other inflammatory conditions that there are numerous studies that cover showing that there is a heavy association between the deprivation of sleep and the increased incidence or increased chance of a diagnosis with that particular type of condition. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I will even go one step further than you just did. And I think you captured quite a bit in what you said there, because you're absolutely right. It does exacerbate neurodevelopmental problems, ADHD and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia are all made far worse in the realm of sleep deprivation. And all of them have associated with them sleep problems. So if you have been diagnosed with ADHD, 
you may also know that you have a sleep problem and and autism. There's all sorts of sleep dysfunction that goes along with having autism. The question is, you know, is it making it worse? Yes, it's making it worse. Is the autism the underlying cause? Very possibly. Or they could both have an underlying cause from where both things came from. But I do want to say, as I said, one thing even beyond what you said, because autoimmune diseases of the periphery, things like psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's disease, those things get exacerbated. They're not necessarily going to be caused by it. At least there's very little evidence that it's actually caused by lack of sleep, but you'll experience the symptoms worse. But I do think that autoimmune conditions and other neurodegenerative problems that occur very well may actually have their underlying cause being chronic sleep deprivation and problems like multiple sclerosis. There's a, an autoimmune disease where it very well may be caused by lack of sleep. And we see in shift workers a higher level of MS as a result of people who are not getting proper sleep or having sleep disruption associated over the long term because of shift work. Tying this back to the autonomic nervous system, you know, we always talk about how the autonomic nervous system and the immune system are really two sides of the same coin, that the autonomic nervous system functions as part of the braking and accelerator for the immune system. It's the most rapid way that the brain can regulate the immune system. Lack of sleep alters your autonomic nervous system function. And predictably, for those of you who listen to the podcast, it's rather predictable, but we would say that when you have a lack of sleep, you have a higher level of sympathetic activation. And that sympathetic activation is associated with higher levels of inflammatory cytokines and inflammation. So sleep is a really good way, even though early stages of sleep and some of the functions of sleep include the use of inflammatory cytokines, but again, not as a pro-inflammatory signal, but more as a pruning and doing the homeostatic housekeeping functions requires that those cytokines be present. But you want to get sleep before you get overtired. You want to get sleep before you've deprived yourself. And at that point, caused yourself issues. Here's a simple analogy for people to understand. As a parent and a homeowner, you would appreciate this as well. Every night, once we get the kids to bed, my wife and I clean up the house. We clean up the kitchen. We put the dishes away. We make sure that the toys are put away. We make sure that our offices are in good order. And if we sit down and we're lazy and we don't do that for one night or two nights or three nights in a row, the house looks and feels like it's an absolute disarray. In the same way, if you have low levels of sleep deprivation chronically building up night after night after night because you're getting five and a half, five hours and 45 minutes of sleep every night and it's just not quite enough for you and you wake up every morning and it's caffeine to get you alert and it's just get into the day and forget about all the stressors and the challenges that are around your house on a daily basis. What happens after a month of that type of activity is the inflammation levels within and around your entire house or your body in that particular case are excessively high. And it becomes a much more daunting task to clean your house after two weeks, three weeks, four weeks 
of not cleaning it a little bit every single day. I'm just going to riff off that just slightly and say, let's say you do get up and you clean every day, but you leave one thing sort of unattended. Even that one thing over time cannot just become big eyesore in the house, but it can actually stop functioning. And I would say that's one of the things that you'll find if you're a new homeowner and you and you don't follow the advice of keeping it clean, you'll find that over time, just not paying attention to it, not doing the simple maintenance will lead to it not functioning. I'll go back to the car analogy. You get a new car, you go out and you drive it, it drives great, it's top condition, but you don't change the oil. I mean, that car could last you for 250,000 miles, but it's not going to last you 20,000 miles if you don't change the oil. You got to change the oil because even though as that oil gets dirtier and dirtier and dirtier, it starts to do damage. And so as the brain continues to collect toxins and get higher levels of inflammatory cytokines, it may lead to those microglial cells that are supposed to be doing those housekeeping tasks supposed to be fixing and pruning and reinforcing instead of doing those things, they start to get distracted into an actually pro-inflammatory state. I don't want to lose that thought because it's really important that we get that through. That sleep is something that's required so that you can do homeostatic function, housekeeping, cleaning, and correcting along the way, much like changing your oil every 3,000 miles in your car. If you don't do that and you don't sleep properly, over time, it's not just that you're going to have a buildup of all these debris and you're not going to have connected things and you'll have problems with learning what you learned then. What's going to happen is you're going to start to not be able to learn in the future, even if you did get sleep. And the reason is because now those microglial cells have shifted out of doing their housekeeping. You've told them they don't have to do their housekeeping. You told them not to do it. You prevented them from doing it. Now they're not going to do it anymore. And then you really lose because that's when you start to have degeneration, you have Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease, and other problems that erupt solely because you didn't take care of the system and you didn't sleep properly. Yeah, it just really goes to show what that nightly maintenance and the importance of that good amount of nightly maintenance is required to ensure that you can handle and take on the challenges of the next day because inevitably there are going to be inflammatory insults that occur on the daily basis when you're awake. If you push yourself awake just a little bit too much, that effect is compounded over time. And that compound effect, you can utilize it both in a positive way by getting really good sleep every single night, or you can utilize it in a really negative way by getting just not enough sleep every single night for a long period of time, causing the reinforcement that you don't need it then becomes much more difficult to get it when you are able to. I think rate parallel, which is really riffs exactly off what you're saying, is if you pull an all-nighter and you try the next afternoon, so you've been up for 36 straight hours, you try to learn something. You have to read a passage, you have to understand what it said, you have to be able to apply it, or you have to do a math problem or something like that. You are as debilitated, literally as debilitated, as if you had a concussion, just to be clear, is it worth it to pull an all-nighter? Because I can do the same thing you do by literally knocking you out, knocking you unconscious. That is what you're doing to yourself. Now, we all know 
that you don't want to do that. Uh, obviously, pulling an all-nighter every night would end up killing you the same way giving you a concussion repeatedly would ultimately kill you. But we know that repeated small blows to the brain, repeated small insults to the brain are sufficient to lead to long-term problems. If that movie Concussion talks about that chronic traumatic encephalopathy, those chronic small level insults didn't knock you out, didn't knock you out. You were conscious, but it was a blow. It was like you got your bell rung and you got your bell rung repeatedly. And sure enough, 10 years later, you've got literally degeneration as if you were a 70 year old or an 80 year old and you're 25 years old. And so what we need to do is recognize that sleep can do the same thing. Chronic low level sleep deprivation, as you said, five hours, five and a half hours of sleep a night, not the seven and a half or eight hours that you really probably should get. And there are some people who can tolerate it, but for most people, that level of lack of sleep is doing the same thing to you that being out getting knocked in the head every day, not knocked unconscious, but just knocked strong enough that it's, it's activating that immune system in the wrong direction. It's disrupting how it's functioning. It's disrupting your autonomic nervous system. So you're going to end up with bad moods. You're going to have headaches. You're going to have cognitive difficulties. You're going to have long-term problems that erupt as a result of that buildup of damage. And so one of the things that we do with animal studies, you know, we can do lots of different things to cause animals to have pain conditions or to have mental issues. One of the tried and true ways of doing that is just keeping the animal awake. Yeah, you know, you keep the animal awake for 24 hours and you start to see that same level of chronic pain buildup if you do it repeatedly. I can only stress that most people when they get to age 40 or 50 years old or beyond 50 the way I am, that you start to realize how much your body needs sleep just because your body starts to wear down. But when you're young and you're 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old, and you're in college and you're pulling all-nighters to study for exams, you're actually literally doing physiologically exactly the wrong thing because you're going to show up there having crammed a whole bunch of knowledge into your brain when you should have been doing it for weeks before that. You're cramming it into your brain and now you've put yourself in a situation where your brain isn't functioning at its top. You try to give yourself caffeine boosts and things like that to try to get it there, but that's not literally going to have those connections functioning properly. So I literally told my daughter this yesterday. I said, the night before a test is not the time to be learning. The night before a test is when you're reviewing what you already know. Little advice from a guy who's been through a little bit of schooling himself and is on the other side of 50. The day before a test is not when you want to be learning things. Why? It's certainly not on the same day if you consider not sleeping because your brain hasn't had a chance to reinforce that learning. Your brain has to have the time to go in and prune away all the connections that don't make it sense and don't make it work efficiently. You need to have at least my sort of guidance to people is you want to have at least one night, if not two or three nights of sleep between the time that you learn something and you have to actually use it and apply it. Yeah. You want to have that time to reinforce it and to build it up and to practice. So 
think a lot of this after having listened to the whole podcast is probably makes sense. And people go, yeah, yeah, I get that. It's why your mother, your grandmother, and your those old wives' tales about getting a good night's sleep before a test. Yeah, it matters. Get a good night's sleep before the test because your brain's going to function better. It's going to be more efficient. It's going to be thinking more clearly. And don't cram the night before because all you're really doing is causing yourself problems. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And you've been through a bit more schooling than I, but there's no question. Like, I never functioned well if I ever tried to do an all-nighter. So it never panned out. And thank God I didn't go down that path. I'm very much an early studier and just review the night before and go to sleep and get a really good night's sleep. Wake up and go because you know what you know. And if it's been reinforced in your brain because you slept well, then you're going to do much better on the test. And my grades go to show exactly that. So I'm very happy to kind of point that out. I want to end with the last little bit of information with regards to how do we make the autonomic nervous system function a little bit better? And is there any science with regards to vagus nerve stimulation potentially as being a prompt for improved sleep? Why don't we dig into that a little bit? Sure. There actually is quite a bit, and, and I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about that. From Really, from the very first clinical studies that were conducted in the implantable vagus nerve stimulators for treating epilepsy, it was observed that there was feedback from patients that sleep was improved. turns out that epilepsy patients do have sleep problems, much the same way ADHD or other brain problems often have comorbidity of sleep issues. So they saw an improvement of sleep and it led to some early studies that seemed to show better sleep architecture, longer time in deep sleep, feelings of alertness the next day. And there were really studies all through the early 2000s that supported that theory. There was, however, and there is even now, one stream of studies, one line of studies, and there's been multiple ones, I'm not shying away from this, that seemed to show that with the implanted vagus nerve stimulators, there was a concern that it could actually trigger or exacerbate existing sleep apnea. And so again, sleep apnea, depending on whether it's central or obstructive sleep apnea, is typically a period of time where you, during sleep, you're waking up, you're going without breathing. There's especially obstructive sleep apnea, it's actually your soft palate that's blocking your airways. And so you wake up because you've not been breathing. There is some evidence in small studies, but it's been multiple small studies, that implanted vagus nerve stimulators can trigger that. And this is my personal belief, is those implanted vagus nerve stimulators are on every five minutes. They literally are stimulating you close to 300 times per day. There's lots of evidence that that's not necessary and that the stimulators are on too many times per day And I don't believe that there's any reason why a person needs to have a stimulator on at night while they're sleeping. Just to reinforce that point slightly, I do remember, I recall going in and noticing that when they turned that implanted device off, that the sleep apnea went away. And so it was just the activity of the implanted device that was triggering the collapse of those muscle tissues because the nerve itself was being stimulated externally rather than an internal stimulation that was occurring. And it was only while the device was active, not when the device was turned off. Exactly. So I'm glad you reinforced that. My position is 
and I think the studies, as you said, bear out that the problem associated with implanted vagus nerve stimulators is likely a function of the duty cycle, which means they're on every five minutes. There does not appear to be a real good clinical reason why they need to be on that frequently. In fact, I think you get the same benefit by just a few stimulations per day. And certainly, if you look at what's happening while you're sleeping, it's very unlikely that you're going to create the hyperexcitation state that leads to a seizure during your sleep. Are seizures not possible during your sleep? No, they are possible. Do they occur as frequently? No, I don't believe that they do. And so as a result, I think that if you have an implanted vagus nerve stimulator, you may want to consider, obviously consult with your physician about this, but you might want to consider reducing your risk of sleep apnea by turning it off at night while you're sleeping or have somebody who's nearby use the magnetic switch to turn it off while you're sleeping so that you can turn it on when you wake up in the morning. Again, speak to your physician about that and whether or not in your specific case that's appropriate, but it does appear that that's the reason why sleep apnea is a risk. But getting back to non-invasive techniques, auricular, cervical, or deep breathing techniques or other things that you can use to activate your vagus nerve don't appear to cause any sleep apnea. Exercise, as we know, is a great way to activate your vagus nerve. Most people aren't exercising while they're asleep at night, but yet they get better sleep. We all know that if you exercise, it has benefits for your sleep. If you do it at the right time of day, obviously, don't do it right before you go to bed because you're probably going to have a difficult time getting to sleep. But exercise is a great way to activate the vagus nerve. There are electrical, there's even chemical ways to stimulate the vagus nerve, although who wants to put yet another chemical in their body? There's really positive ways to leverage the benefits of the sleep architecture, the benefits of deep sleep, the benefits of making your microglial cells more efficient. In fact, I would say to people who have, we talked earlier about the fact that if you have um, certain medical conditions, that those medical conditions may have associated with them difficulty with your sleep not necessarily insomnia, not necessarily some sort of diagnosable sleep problem, but you're just having difficulty sleeping. You may find that vagus nerve stimulation puts your microglial cells into a more healthy state so that when you try to sleep, you sleep more effectively. And as a result, you may not experience as severe symptoms as you otherwise do with those medical conditions. I'm not saying you won't actually find that those medical conditions get even further benefit, because I think you probably will, but at least with respect to the exacerbation of the symptoms associated with lack of sleep, you may find benefit. Yeah, no question about it. And I think this was a great place to kind of point to and state that we have tech out there that is has been shown time and time again to have a very positive effect to optimize sleep or to support the sleep of those who are having trouble getting it. And the importance of sleep cannot be understated. It is so, so important to get good, optimal time lengths of sleep, not to be woken up by an alarm every single morning, not to go to bed late at night after staring at your phone and watching TV and having blue light exposure all through the ridiculous amounts of TV and and whatnot watching that we do in the nighttime. We need to follow a circadian biology And our immune system requires that. Our vagus nerve and autonomic nervous system require that in order to function optimally. And there's ways to hack this system to make it work better so that we can function and have even greater productivity and efficiency 
for the hours that we're awake because we have slept better. And sleep is without a doubt the best biohack, the best simple and strongest way to really reinforce optimal health and function. There's no question about it. I'll state that straight up. If you don't sleep well, you're putting yourself in harm's way and you're not giving yourself the opportunity to show up. And if you're experiencing symptoms like depression or like headache or anxiety or frankly, gut health issues and breathing issues, I think you're going to find, in fact, there's clinical studies that show that patients with depression who have long-term chronic depression issues, who have their sleep problems addressed, and as a result, they sleep better, their depression goes away. And so I cannot do anything more than emphasize what you just said, which is it's not simply about feeling better because you're doing a biohack. It's about literally not putting yourself in harm's way. You, every time you do that, it's literally like going out on the football field without a helmet on. You wouldn't do that, okay? Going out on a football field, <laughs> I've seen players on the sideline want to get into a fight and they're not wearing their helmet and another player will grab them and pull them off the field. Don't go onto a football field without a helmet on because you don't want to get your head, your bell rung. Don't do it to yourself by not sleeping. I, I'm reminded again of, of something that my grandmother said, which is nothing good happens after midnight. The only good things that happen after midnight are when you're sleeping in bed and your microglial cells are fixing all of the problems and cleaning things out, making your brain more efficient so that you can wake up alert and functioning and smart. That's what you need to be doing. And I know that that makes me sound like a fuddy-duddy because you know, sure enough, I've been out till two o'clock in the morning at concerts before. But if you're going to do that sort of thing, if you're going to go out and spend out till two o'clock in the morning somewhere, two things. One, Make certain that you have planned that the next day you can sleep long enough that you can get appropriate amount of sleep. Or frankly, just don't expect yourself to be too functional the next day because you're just not going to be. And don't make it a habit. Don't make it something you do every night. If you're going to do it once, that's fine. For some people, they can get away with it without even having a headache the next day. But get to sleep. Get to sleep. And make certain that with the next night you get a good night's sleep and the next night after that. I think a good rule of thumb is once a week. Don't do it more than once a week. I think a good six to one ratio, good night's sleep to bad night's sleep is probably a good one. Yeah. So, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Don't make poor sleep a habit is kind of the best way to put this. And your health will benefit if you sleep well. There's no question. Thank yeah. you so much for this wonderful episode today. I think we got a lot of amazing info out to everybody. Feel free to share this episode with somebody who isn't sleeping well or with anybody who you think could use this information to optimize their health and get them feeling upgraded. Thank you so much for listening today and we'll catch you on the next. Thank you.